Thank you everyone for coming. We're gonna get started. How is the volume? Is it okay? Perfect. So, first of all, welcome to the World Transformed. This is the Black E main space, and you're in a session called I'm Literally a Communist, Marks at 200. I'm Wendy Liu, and I'll be your chair this evening. So, I know what you're all thinking. Where is Ash Starfire, and why is she not chairing this panel? After all, the title of the session comes from her legendary debate with Piers Morgan on Good Morning Britain earlier this summer. Uh, unfortunately, Ash is a little overbooked this weekend, so wasn't able to chair. I'll do my best to chair in her stead. So first, a bit of a disclaimer in case there are any journalists in the audience. The title, I'm literally a communist, is a reference to Ash's quote. It should not be taken as some sort of statement or endorsement by the World Transformed, the Memento, the Labour Party. <laughs> um, I mean, I can already see the headline now, like the, the Daily Mail, right? Like Jeremy Corbyn endorses gulags and secret police, like it's, it's gonna happen, unfortunately. Um, anyway, so the point of this title is less as a statement and more as a provocation. Recognizing that Marx's ideas are still relevant today, even 200 years after his birth, and perhaps in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, maybe more relevant now than ever. This panel is an attempt to understand why Marx is still relevant today, and what we can learn from his legacy in a way that is accessible and useful even to those of us who don't have a great understanding of Marx's theory. So I myself am still really new to Marxism, so I'm extremely honored to be able to introduce the following panelists, all of whom are much more knowledgeable than I am. So starting from the left, we have Tithi Bhattacharya, Professor of South Asian History and Director of Global Studies at Purdue University. Then we have Aaron Bastani, co-founder of Navarre Media and author of Fully Automated Luxury Communism, due to come out in June next year and Vijay Prashad, Indian historian and Marxist, who is director of the Tri-Continental Institute and editor of Leftward Books. And then we have Lynn Siegel, academic feminist writer, who's the author of Radical Happiness and national organizer for the International Women's Strike. I would also like to thank the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung Institute Brussels office for their help organizing this panel. So without further ado, we'll start with Tibi. Thanks, Wendy. Um, you got uh, Lynn and I switched. I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind switching spaces with Lynn. It's a great honor. But I am the national organizer for the International Women's Strike. <laughs> but Lynn is too, in her own way. <laughs> so. Um, Wendy's introduction really is very helpful for me to launch into what I'm going to say because it's both about Marx's theory and about why Marx is relevant for our times. So I'm going to start with chains because it is clear that Marxists like to obsess about chains. They talk about losing our chains, of weak links in chains, and of course breaking chains. The chain metaphor operates as a political counterpart to the Marxist theoretical um, counterpart of the method of abstraction. So abstraction, as it derives from the Latin word, literally means to pull from. 
the idea being that reality as it appears before us is just too messy to understand, so it has to be parceled out into more manageable parts um, and analyzed that way. The idea of the chain operates in a similar manner for political action, that capitalism produces a thicket of political issues, always, of course, undergirded by the violence of the oppressor and the pain of the dispossessed. But in such a maze of myriad oppressions, it is impossible for revolutionaries to choose which project demands their specific and immediate attention. The chain metaphor, meanwhile, reveals two things. One, that capitalism is a global totality and each link is connected to the other in and through deeply edged social and economic relations and B, the most fundamental thing, that some of the links on the chain might be weak. It is the revolutionary's task in this project to first recognize those weak links, the manageable categories, as it were, and then to grasp them, because through them you can grasp the whole chain, indeed shatter it. Lenin, of course, is the master weak link specialist as he both develops a precise theory of it and unlike any other revolutionary before him or after, almost manages to shatter the chain. So there's, he, he has a lot of chain uh, codes that I won't go into with, with you for lack of time. And he understood this whole problem of the thicket, that there are too many issues quite well because he, from such a web of differential oppressions, he set himself and his party the task of discovering what he called, I quote, in the existing state of things, those elements that will lead to its overthrow. So it is important to note that in this framework, uh, I recognize that this framework of how to find in the existing state of things the weak links is a recognition of the imminent nature of political strategizing. That the seeds of emancipation are not in any future dimension or distant utopia, but embedded in certain present conditions, which are the weak links. So since this is a method Lenin clearly developed from Marx, what imminent weak links then did Marx tried to grasp during his own time. So the traditional understanding of Marx is that the weak link, the way he understood it, is that he recognized the workings of capitalism as a global system and the global working class as its grave diggers. And in a sense, this is right, that that's what he did. But what has perhaps been less acknowledged is the place of colonialism qua capitalism in Marx's explanatory framework and how that relates to the tasks of the working class. So first, colonial plunder in Marx is part of the motor of capitalist development rather than a contingency or an externality. His writings on India, the jewel in Britain's imperial crown, for example, testifies to how he understood colonialism and capitalism to be co-constitutive, okay, that both go with each other. 
And again, there are lots of um, beautiful quotes um, from the late 19th century that Marx talks about India in this way, that he talks about the drain, the violence. Um, he says he calls it a bleeding process and so on. In his analysis, Marx is doing two things. One, he is establishing how colonialism is the condition of possibility for capitalism, and thereby, two, he's indicating why internationalism is a structural necessity, not a moral imperative for all working class struggle. The latter strand, that internationalism is a necessity, he develops most cogently in relation to Ireland. England today, he stated in a uh, January 1870 circular, is seeing a repetition of what happened on a gigantic scale in ancient Rome, a nation that enslaves another forges its own chains, unquote. For English workers, he wrote in a letter in April of that same year, and I quote, the national emancipation of Ireland is no question of abstract justice or humanitarian sentiment, but the first condition of their own social emancipation. So Ireland's emancipation was the condition for emancipation of the English working class. Indeed, if we understand Lenin to be the strategist of the revolution, Marx is as much of a Leninist in his sharp recognition of how this argument should apply to concrete organizational situation. So I quote him on Ireland again, it is in the direct and absolute interest of the English working class to get rid of their present connection with Ireland. For a long time, I believe that it would be possible to overthrow the Irish regime by English working class ascendancy. Deeper study has now convinced me of the opposite. The English working class will never accomplish anything before it has got rid of Ireland. The lever must be applied in Ireland. This is why the Irish question is so important for the social movement in general." Unquote. Um, in this passage are seeded all the key three threads of a Marxist political strategy. First, that capitalism was sustained by an international division of labor, and second, that such a systemic apportioning of global labor power produced a combined but uneven global working class, often pitted against each other. And finally, the only way to overcome the political and material unevenness among workers was to make apparent the chain of combination that bound them. I use the phrase make apparent with some deliberation because the chain may not be so clear at all moments of political action. Let's say cheap cotton is the basis of your life and livelihood, the means by which you can feed your family. So, and if that means of cheap cotton um, dries up, then surely the working class ought to be fighting for the sake of their lives and those of their families to restore that supply of cheap cotton. So in the case of Manchester, workers during the US Civil War against the North, shouldn't they be rooting for the victory for the South? so that the cheap cotton could be restored and it would give them their wages and lives back. Marx gives us a decisive no. 
What impressed Marx the most about the English working class in the early 1860s was the fact that in public meeting after public meeting in 62 and 63, workers from Manchester to London organized in opposition to active British support for the slave South. This action on the part of workers went against their own immediate economic interests and was, as Marx wrote, an act almost without precedent. So the best way to commemorate Marx's 200th birthday then is for us to try to understand the weak links for our times, those fault lines of capitalist reality which contain the imminent possibilities for grasping that chain. And here, I think that just as all key questions of world politics and global justice led one to Vietnam two generations ago, and where you stood on Vietnam was indicative of where you stood on the international class struggle, today there is one such question that carries the same political charge the question of Palestine. There is a... There is a very practical reason why Palestine is made to be such a political taboo in liberal political circles and in the US even amongst progressives. Vijay and I can tell you about the uh, acronym PEP progressive except for Palestine. So you can be progressive feminist, but not for the liberation of Palestine. You're a pet. The occupation of Palestine, Palestinian land and the decimation of Palestinian people and their histories are key strategies for the maintenance of the imperial order that European nations, Britain in particular, put in place in the post-war period and that the US and Israel, with the aid of some key allies in the Middle East, has brutally developed since then. This is not simply a question of access to global oil reserves, which still bears extreme strategic importance for the global North countries, but also the very question of stabilizing the political conditions of the Middle East in order for such accumulation to take place. So, and this is not just about um, uh, the US attacking Palestine, which it routinely does or gives money for its routine attack, but even like normal political, um, it, its normal imperialist moves in the region is justified as a defense of Israel. So for instance, in mid-September of 2014, the US began the new bombing campaign uh, targeting ISIS and the Khorasan group. Um, but in the US, the new war was explained in part as a defense of apartheid Israel uh, state. So thus making clear that all challenges to the current international order, including challenges from such right-wing forces such as ISIS, are in reality seen as challenges to key nations who organize that hegemony and in the case of the Middle East, the US and Israel are obviously the key strategic players. Trump's 2018 budget proposal slashes US foreign affairs budget by almost a third. It, it claims to eliminate key programs for low-income communities at home. 
funding for international climate change initiatives, reducing funding for UN agencies, so on and so forth. But the one area remains untouched. The president's pr proposal provides $3.1 billion to meet the security assistance commitment to Israel. This is a code currently putting that amount at an all-time high. But this is also happens on the part of Israel connecting the developments in Israel and occupied territories to national developments in the United States. Israel harnesses racism to its own advantage, rebranding its shared values. For example, it conflates America's current panic or American ruling class's current panic about Mexicans with Islamic terrorism. A former Israeli soldier currently, um, and who's now a congressman, currently made the entirely ludicrous claim that Al-Qaeda has camps with drug cartels on either sides of the border. So the Muslims are doing this. Americans who originally hailed from India are being courted for support because they too, I quote, have much to fear from the Islamic world, unquote. The charge of anti-Semitism that is now being whipped up to attack some of the best fighters for justice for Palestine, some of our best anti-Zionist Jewish comrades, is not a simple political strategy to destabilize Jeremy Corbyn's immensely popular, immensely necessary leadership of the Labour Party. In doing so, it is a careful strategy to stabilize the sinews and networks of global imperialism. I am, like many of you, disappointed in the way the Labour Party leadership, contrary to Corbyn's own history of Palestine activism, has given in on the IHRA debate. The Labour Party, the activists in moment, momentum, together with our comrades in the feminist movement, the immigrants' rights movement, and of course in smaller far-left groupings, are our means to agitate and cohere our class. If we unite our class by shielding it against the question of Palestine, because it is too controversial or not directly relevant to the British labor movement, we will be doing our movement and its history a grave injustice and actively weakening it. For a working class that is not sharp on the chains of empire will fail to see even the national chains that bind it. Conceding to the boss's demand for imperial hegemony on the, hegemony on the Middle East politically strengthens the boss's demands for slashed wages and benefits at home. Our current labor movement must revive the memory of the Manchester workers as they stood firm in meeting after meeting on the question of which side to back in the American Civil War. But this time, instead of the cotton fields of Alabama, we need to think of the olive groves of the occupied West Bank. Thank you. I'm afraid I won't be able to follow that up with the same lucidity that you had, but I'll, uh, I'll 
pull up a few points initially. So in regard to colonialism and the necessity of conquest and it being coterminous with the emergence of capitalism, and Ireland in particular, if you look at the Cromwellian conquest of Ireland, it was fundamentally premised actually on promises of land given over to the English, the new aristocracy, during the early years of the English Revolution, Civil War, and this was a, essentially a, a form of most a financial instrument. And it was saying, we want credit to fight this war, to finance the new model army. In the future, you will have these lands in Ireland. And so the fundamental basis of occupation in Ireland was about financing war, financing this emergent military industrial complex for the English bourgeoisie, who were revolting against from Charles I. Obviously, very complex. And there are antecedents to those works in Manchester, because there were levellers um, who were in the New Model Army, radicals, who said, well, we want to be self-governing, and we want a Republic of England, so how can it make sense that we're self-governing and yet we're being sent to Ireland? The first war immediately following, effectively, the, the supremacy of Cromwell and the supremacy of Parliament was to Ireland. And this served a number of purposes. Like I say, first and foremost, it was about giving the people who'd financed this really horrific bloody war uh, something in return, but also you had to demobilize a massive body of people who were in the New Model Army. Very radical, often very violent, very proficient in terms of war, and so that was, uh, that was very uh, key, and I think it's really important you brought that up. Not just Ireland, the Virginia Company around the same time, we're talking the mid-17th century, same with Barbados. And if you look at the Netherlands, at the same time, what are they doing? They're digging, I didn't know this until very recently. The reason why the Netherlands developed so early, you know, it was a very successful capitalist economy even before England, was because they had this huge surplus of natural energy, heat. I didn't know this. It's almost as efficient as coal to burn. They were digging this stuff up like no tomorrow and they were burning it and it was really powering their revolution. And you might think, what's heat got to do with colonialism and conquest in Ireland? These are the outside for capitalism. Capitalism has to subsist of free things, free stuff. So you could call those the gifts of nature, okay? And in the case of colonialism, it's stealing other people's lands. Or in the case of gender, it's gendered reproduction. Unpaid female laborers reproducing labor power. And so all of these outsides are absolutely fundamental, first in the constituting and in the reproduction of the capitalist mode of production. What is the capitalist mode of production? It's when you get something, right? You got some money, and you say, well, I want to make some more money. So I want to make this value in circulation, and so you make a profit of something using uh, money, the money form. I'm, so, I'm sure somebody can explain it better than I can. But that's quite a new thing. Arguably, it's since the 15th century. But in terms of its presence around much of the world in the last 200 years, so returning to the central question about why I'm a communist, why I'm literally a communist, I am a communist because I am a Marxist. And why am I a Marxist? Because I'm an empiricist. I look at the world around me. Now if you talk to pretty much anybody, even in the liberal establishment, they say climate change is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. It's going to remake the planet. Aging is a really big deal. It's going to remake the planet. At the turn of the 20th century, I think one in a hundred people would reach 80. Now it's going to be around one in three. That's a big change. And we know we're going to have ever, an ever smaller number of working age people having to sustain an ever older population. By the midpoint of this century, 
it's going to be quite difficult. And under the capitalist mode of production, that, that social reproduction, that support, that care, is going to break because you're, it's premised, like I said, on so much free labour. But when you have that many old people, and not many young people, it probably won't function anymore. So they accept that. And then there's automation. They say, well, automation, wow, you know, we might not have many jobs left. And people say, well, people always create new jobs. This is the, uh, this is the Luddites kind of conspiracy theory. They got it wrong then, they'll get it wrong again, you know? But we know that about 80, 90% of jobs we have today exist in 1900. And yes, there are new jobs in the US, two of the, two of the fastest growing jobs in the United States are solar cell engineer and wind, type, you know, wind turbine engineer guy. But the really, the big growth sectors in the US and the US labor market, again, in care, elderly care, surprise, surprise, for an aging population. So, automation. Climate change, aging, there are other ones. But these are what we think of as three secular crises. That is to say, they are not cyclical. People aren't going to magically start getting younger in 10 years' time. Okay? The climate isn't going to return to homeostasis you know, uh, you know, by the middle of the 21st century. If anything, it's actually going to accelerate far more than our modelling shows at present. So the establishment accept the presence of all of these crises. Right? But they don't accept the necessity of the solution, which I would say is communism. Because Marx outlines how capitalism is not a sustainable mode of production. And he talks about metabolic rift between the gifts of nature and their exploitation. We now see that with uh, climate change. He talks about colonialism, the political management, that becomes increasingly difficult as you get class consciousness, not just within nation states, but across them. Uh, and automation, the Grimmerism, the one I always talk about, page 601. In the Penguin edition, the Gundrissa. And he talks about, and he talks about uh, over time, less and less neighbor power is needed to go into the manufacture of a specific commodity. And he says, this is the condition for the emancipation of labor. So there's a paradox here, in so much as capitalists constantly trying to expel labor from the production process. And yet, this itself is the precondition for a new kind of society which comes after capitalism, a post-work, post-scarcity society, which is the premise of my book, Fully Automated Luxury Communism. Now, to be clear, this society is not inevitable. People think, oh, Aaron, such a schmuck. He thinks we're going to be living like the Jetsons in 30 years and we don't need to do anything. I don't think. And a good lens to look at this issue, it's problematic through, is through, I think, a, a conflict of ideas between two of the great political economists of the last 200 years, John Maynard Keynes and Karl Marx, who else? Now, John Maynard Keynes, in 1931, writes a very optimistic tract, letter on the economic possibilities for our grandchildren. And he says, a hundred years hence, notwithstanding any major crises or wars, well, okay, few of those happen. <laughs> Notwithstanding that, you know, he, he could foresee a world, because of what he called the power of compound interest, he could foresee a world where we had uh, to work just a few hours a day. And in fact, it could even be less, but he thought human nature was such that a few hours work a day would satisfy what he called the Adam within all of us, primal urge for work. And yet that hasn't happened. 
We know that people are working more than they were 20 years ago. We know on some measures actually it looks like life expectancy may be going down in the developed world, which is stagnating. Uh, we know that wages are flatlining. We know that productivity is flatlining. What's productivity? Productivity is how much GDP or how much economic value is created per person per hour of work. Uh, per person per hour worked. Now in Britain this has stagnated for 10 years. This is not in the Marxist register, socialist register. This is not in, uh, you know, some verso publication nobody's ever heard of. This is in the Financial Times. So this is another issue. Again, the establishment is the first to admit this. Productivity has flatlined despite these incredible technologies. So, what do we do? How do we, you know, move to this new system? I think in essence, and this is maybe where I have some disagreement with my fellow panellists. Hold on. Are you right? Hold on. So far, so good. Uh, in, the, in the book, I talk about how there are three disruptions. Now, forgive me for that word, disruption. I'm trying to get Elon Musk and idiots like this to read it. I'm trying to appeal to the Silicon Valley crowd. It's like a disruption. Um, so the first disruption is the Neolithic Revolution, the production of surplus for the first ever time. Okay? Around 10,000 years ago, somewhere in the Middle East, that's where all the best stuff comes from. Right? Second disruption, it's a long disruption. Um, you could probably say it begins in about the 15th century, new kinds of gender relation, the emergence of capitalism, but the kind of icing on this cake is of course the steam engine. Makes this new mode of production go on steroids and it tears the planet apart in the space of 100 years. And if you want a great account of this, Eric Hobsbawm, um, you know, he has, he has a, a, a sort of triptych of these books Age of Empire, Age of Extremes, Age of Capital. Amazing. And you see how quickly the world's transformed. And the, the pivotal technology for this is the steam engine. And of course, the steam engine in synthesis with hydrocarbons. And this transforms the world in terms of transit, transportation, manufacture, production, communication, everything based on the world. That's the second disruption. And you think, well, a lot changed between the first disruption and the second disruption. That's 10,000 years. But if you look at, for instance, Renaissance Florence, early 16th century, Machiavelli's writing The Prince or The Discourses or whatever, the quality of his drinking water would be more or less the same as a Roman aqueduct in the first century AD. Source of light is the same. They're still using horses. Agricultural methods haven't changed that much. Some, you know, a little bit, of course. There's some innovation, but not massively. Fast forward today, everything's changed. So we're now living amongst what I think is this sort of the opening decades of what I call the third disruption. And the third disruption isn't just um, about automation or robotics. I think we are moving to what's called again by establishment economics. Zero marginal cost in information, in energy, in resources, and in labour. Now the problem with zero marginal cost, what is zero marginal cost? It's when you can produce something ad infinitum and basically it doesn't cost you anything. A classic example is a, a PDF file of your favourite book. The first digital copy of that, you, you know, have to make it and yeah, okay, fine. But then to fabricate it to make a second copy, now, that tendency is going to exist in more and more parts of economic life. And you might be thinking, what the hell are you talking about? A great example is solar energy. Solar energy is getting astonishingly efficient. We first started using, so, by the way, tell me when you shut up. Um, we first started using solar energy, I think it was on a, an 
NASA satellite, the second ever NASA satellite uses solar cells. And since then, it's just been getting astonishingly efficient, astonishingly quickly. The same is happening now with renewable energy storage uh, lithium-ion batteries. And what's happening is, and it's only been, again, this was in the FT just a few months ago, what's happening is now energy companies are saying, well, the, the costs of renewables are falling so quickly that the price mechanism can't really measure it. Because if something's getting cheaper literally every year, how can anybody produce it for a profit? If you can't produce it for a profit under capitalism, how do you produce it? Okay? So that's an issue. And this is in the, I think it was in the Economist, and they're like, oh God, it sort of just dawned on them. Um, and it, but we see this in so many other places. Another one is um, gene editing. If you look at gene editing, there are thousands of conditions promising a single incorrect letter of DNA. A single letter. Huntingdon's sickle cell anemia. A single letter. Now the possibility, now this of course has to be regulated very stringently because the possibility of bioweapons, etc. is fast. But, but, the idea that you could change a single letter in DNA and you can eradicate single cell anemia forever, sickle cell anemia forever, or Huntington's forever, you know, we got rid of smallpox, I think, in the 1970s. Now, you know, apply that to thousands of other conditions. Now, if you think I'm just sort of plucking um, anecdotes from thin air, somebody's already doing this. There's a guy in the United States who's a gene hacker, biohacker, but also a Dalmatian breeder. This is in, this is in Wired magazine. It happened in early 2017, remarkable story. I think his name was David Ishii. Put um, Dalmatian gene editing. Because there's this new technology called CRISPR-Cas9, zero marginal cost, biology is becoming an information good, so of course the same thing obtains. It's getting cheaper and cheaper every year, and it's falling outside the price mechanism. David Ishii, going back to this Dalmatian breeder guy, he works out, I'll wrap up, I'll show up next <laughs> he works out that you can basically change a single uh, letter of the DNA of Dalmatian, and they basically all have gout. I don't know if anybody's got Dalmatians. They get gout very easily. So he, he writes a letter to the FDA, and he says, look, I'm a biohacker. I breed Dalmatians. I just want to try this out. No response. No response. No response. Three, four weeks pass. FDA, press release. We are now treating edited DNA like a patented pharmaceutical drug. Surprise, right? It's not very profitable to do that. It's far, far more profitable to sell pharmaceutical treatments than deal with the problem at root. And that's replete across healthcare, food, all manner of other uh, economic fields. However, we should be very optimistic about those possibilities, but also understand that fundamentally, if there isn't a politics that meets those possibilities and those opportunities, the world will get better and not, will not get better. They get worse, <laughs> rather than better. And this is where we need to situate Corbynism. Jeremy Corbyn and Labour government do not have all the answers. The first thing they'll do is break with austerity. The second thing they'll do is offer a prototype to other countries abroad and say there is a world beyond neoliberalism. But the third thing is they're going to create a social, intellectual space within which we can begin to speculate about the kind of world we can create the technologies we already have, because we're not doing that right now. Um, so, comrades, this is a 20, 30, 40 year project ahead. It's very exciting.
building. I asked my earlier panel, how do these things get names like this? How do they maintain names like this? It's incredible. It's like the 17th century. Slaving town with a building named Blackie. And people seem perfectly happy with it. It's incredible. Over 30 years ago, I joined the Communist Party of India Marxist. Now, I've remained a member for 30 plus years. I joined the party just before the Soviet Union collapsed. It was odd timing. <laughs> the Soviet Union collapsed. Other parts of the world began to rethink not only communism, but also Marxism. Many years later, after that, I read a play. Didn't get to see it, but I read the play by Tony Kushner called Perestroika. Now, this play opens in the Great Hall of the People, in the dying days of the USSR, when the great comrade, Anti Diluvievich, takes the stage. He is the world's oldest Bolshevik. And Comrade Anti Diluvievich comes there to give his final appeal to the surrenderists, Gorbachev and the other betrayers of the USSR. He comes with his final appeal to say, don't break it up. And this is what he says. He says to them, when I was young, he said, we had a theory. We had a theory so that we together could climb the mountain and watch the dawn of a new day. Then he says to them, but you, you net men, referring to the new economic policy of the 19th, you net men, you shriveled excuses for humanity. You don't have a theory. He says, you don't have a theory. If you had a theory, I would climb the mountain again with you. Even I, old, the oldest Bolshevik, even I would climb the mountain. But you don't have a theory. You can't see the dawn because you think that the present is forever, essentially. And then comes my favorite line. He says, even a snake, when it sheds its skin, has grown another skin. Have you another skin, my little serpents? <laughs> Comrades, <laughs> Comrades, our theory is Marxism. Marxism has meant a lot for tens if not hundreds of millions of people around the planet. Now, in our movement, for instance, in India, the founders of the Communist Party hadn't read any Marx. They didn't read Capital. They read smatterings of Soviet texts, you know, the things that I as well read as a young person, ABCs of communism and so on. But they understood Marxism in their bones. They understood the essentials of the science before they read it. They didn't come to communism as intellectuals. 
They came to this movement through their experience in the anti-colonial struggles. Those experiences taught them a simple lesson. Their wealth was being leached. It was being taken to profit other countries. Factories that were around them were not enriching the workers, but in fact, making workers less and less human as each year went by. Great poet, Admi Bari Mushkil Se Insanwa. We were people with great difficulty, we became human. Their humanity was being leached by this system. They didn't necessarily have the name capitalism even to name it initially. They came to the struggle from their experiences, but when they read the theory, they found that it helped them sharpen their sense of where are the chains and which is the weakest link. But comrades, Marxism is not a religion. I hope you recognize that. I mean, I, as much as anybody, have a sort of place in my heart for Karl Marx and the imagery and so on. And I love that poster. I was there at the Marx Memorial Library's meeting about Marx in London. And it was lovely to see John McDonald stand in front of that sign and give his lecture. I took a nice photograph of him speaking with, as Che Guevara used to call him, Santa Carlos behind him. <laughs> but we don't believe in Santa Carlos or we don't see Marxism as a theology. It is from Lenin that we get the attitude, which is that Marxism is the concrete analysis of concrete conditions. Marxism is, if nothing, a creative science. It is not a religion, which is why it is so important for us to understand developments in capitalism. Because the capitalism that we confront now is not the same as the capitalism my comrades confronted in the early 20th century when they founded our party a hundred years ago in 1920. It's a completely different kind of beast that we confront. Unless we clearly study, and this is why I don't instinctively disagree with you, unless we, we may disagree on some particular small things, but instinctively, if we don't study capitalism as it is today, we won't understand how to defeat it. I want to just take a few minutes to talk about a few features of capitalism today that I think we should focus on. You know, in the manifesto, Marx and Engels wrote quite clearly that capitalism's instinct is global. It seeks global domination. But it was held back by technology and by politics. In other words, the technology was slow in the 19th century. Ships took a long time to go places. It was hard to send messages. I still own a fax machine. In our office we have in Delhi, in the cupboard we have a fax machine. So what are we going to do? Nobody else sends fax. I'm of the view we should plug it in. You never know. <laughs> That might be a message from the 1980s. 
waiting to print out. And politically, it was not possible for capitalism to have a complete global order premised on its institutions, its ideology. What held capitalism back in the 20th century politically were two main dynamics, and we might add a third. One was the Russian Revolution and the creation of the Soviet bloc. Now, whatever you think of the Soviet bloc, and it is a much maligned history, you know, one of the things that the bourgeoisie has done successfully is to enable us after 91 to forget everything that was contradictory inside the Soviet Union and the DDR and so on. Everything is supposed to have been terrible. Imagine to reduce the whole history of the DDR to the two words police state strikes me as not nuance. You know, it's extraordinary. The United States likes you to think of it as a nuance. You know, think with nuance. About, you know, think about Britain with nuance. I mean, this country brutalized the whole planet with its colonial wars, not only in the 19th century, let's talk about Malaya, Kenya in the 1950s, but yet we are supposed to have a nuanced understanding of Britain. But the DDR, no, let's reduce it to the words police state. Anyway, the Soviet bloc was one major political obstacle for capital. The second was the third world project. Again, complicated. Capital could enter, but in a mediated fashion, not in its own terms alone. And the third that I said we could add to this is the labor movement in the West, which played a role in blocking capital, having its way completely with society. The political obstacle died out in the 1980s. When the Soviet Union began to collapse, the third world was destroyed by the debt crisis, and the labor movement here was viciously destroyed. I mean, this labor movement didn't destroy because of errors by trade union leaders, and you know, we forget the ruthlessness of your bourgeoisie, the miners' strike and so on, ruthless bourgeoisie. Technological developments took place at the same time. Computerization, container ships, databases, computerization, as I said, satellite technology, and so on. The lack of political bloc and the emergence of these new technologies allowed capital a decisive advantage globally against labor. And you started seeing factories being broken up into small sections about what they manufacture. Tire manufactured here, ball bearing manufactured there, engine manufactured here, carburetor manufactured there, assembled somewhere else. What this did were two things. One, economically, it allowed capital no longer to actually have to invest itself in production. It allowed, because the scale of investment was not for one giant factory, but for many little, little factories, capital was able to outsource production. So small and medium manufacturing entered the production process directly. For instance, Apple makes no computers. Nike makes no shoes. All of it is subcontracted to bits and pieces, small firms. Secondly, this meant that trade union strength was depleted. Because no longer could you strike 
in one ball bearing factory, capital will just start to source ball bearings from somewhere else. The decimation of the left, or at least the depletion of our reservoir, took place because of these technological developments. But there are weak links here as well. You know, there are weak links to identify here as well. For instance, there are three weak links I want you to think about. And the international left movement has been thinking about these three weak links for a long time now. One of them is logistics. After all, if it's hard to organize a factory that makes ball bearings, those ball bearings have to be moved to the next factory to be put inside the next piece of machinery. That means the weak link there is transportation. Transportation is a key sector for the socialist movement. Much more attention needs to be paid in radicalizing what used to be one of the most radical sectors of the international working class, used to be dock workers. But now transportation is a much wider and complicated arena. Linked to that, secondly, weakly, is the logistics which is in computers, database management, for instance. It's an extraordinarily weak link. If you can crash the database of Amazon, for instance, imagine how difficult it will be for Amazon to sustain its business. Amazon is a logistics company. It doesn't produce anything. So organizing people who work in databases, that's a very key area to put some thought on. But the third is the most important. I mean, we have to come to terms with the fact that the big monopoly capitalist firms are rentiers. They are rent collectors. Apple collects rent of intellectual property right. Nike collects rent of intellectual property right. Pfizer collects rent of intellectual property right. And do you know until the 1980s, the idea of intellectual property right was quite humane. Until the 1980s, the International Convention on Intellectual Property Rights was you could only patent a process. You couldn't patent the product. In this period of the 1980s, when the Soviet bloc was weak, when the Third World bloc had essentially collapsed, in the general agreement on trade and tariffs of the Uruguay round, the West pushed for a change in patent laws so that now it's not the process that's patented, but the product. We have to fight to break their monopoly on patents because that is actually one of the weakest links of monopoly capitalism today. I know this is a dead boring area, and lefties hate boring things. <laughs> you want to be on the picket line. You want to be, you know, doing disrupt. What? Who wants to organize an international brigade of lawyers and so on? But I'm not saying do it like that. They politicized patents in the 1980s. But they politicized it the way power does, behind closed doors. The last gap round became the World Trade Organization. And that is where they have been able to establish this new idea of intellectual property rights. 
We need to take this fight to the streets. We need to raise as a slogan a world without patents. And you know, this is already there. In the free software movement, people have taken very seriously the idea that intellectual property holds back creativity. Not only does it deny people the right to different forms of human knowledge, not corporate knowledge, human knowledge. I mean, take the question of quinine. You know, what you, because of the British Empire, the gin and tonic, what is in the tonic water? Yeah, one minute more. In the tonic water. <laughs> that quinine comes from the quinchona tree that was domesticated in South America, in the Amazon region. When the British brought that tree to Kew Gardens, they didn't pay the people of Amazonia. Now I'm supposed to pay you rent. Patent is a colonial idea, which today is the heart of profit making by monopoly firms. What I'm trying to say, and this is my last line, don't worry Wendy, this is my last line, we are Marxists because we are anti-capitalists. An anti-capitalist cannot be anti-capitalist without a theory. Our theory, Marxism, is not a theology. It has to be in deep conversation with developments in capitalism. So what I would say to you is, be creative in your thinking. Don't believe that you can be strugglers without theory. Because the peril is what Andy Dilibovich said to the other people in the hall of the great Soviet, where Andy Dilibovich said, what is your theory, my little servants? Thanks a lot. So um, I'll be taking it down a register, and uh, I hope that's all right. Once upon a time, I was literally an anarchist entering the swinging 60s. Can you hear me? Good. It was a gentle sort of anarcho-syndalism, symbolism, syndicalism, and permanent protest for Kunin and Max Nomad, not Marx or Lenin who held sway amongst my gang of Sydney libertarians. Quintessentially anti-authoritarian, we were extravagantly at odds with every institution of the day, state, church, and anything else, really. We, I had my first arrest for spray painting, whoever you vote for, the government gets in. <laughs> but then, with the flowering of women's liberation the following decade, I became doggedly what I remain which is literally a socialist feminist. And this did lead us to read Marx, along with Juliet Mitchell, Sheila Rowbottom, Angela Davis, and soon enough, hundreds of other feminists. We had new heroines then, Colin Ty, Luxembourg, those who'd taken part in women resistance and revolution, as well as militant trade unionists and rebel girls of all stripes. An early collection of women's liberation, I noticed, from 1974, had marks on its front page, marks on ideology, 
To call to abandon their illusions about their conditions is a call to abandon the conditions of illusion. So we were in Marx reading groups, often in Freud reading groups, all sorts of reading groups. But back then, of course, Marx was much more read and talked about post-68. I've heard David Harvey say that when he taught Marx at NYU, people were hanging out the windows to listen to him, although capitalism didn't at first seem to be in crisis then. 20 years later, when it clearly was in more crisis and a far more predatory form of capitalism, it was um, very advanced. Nobody wanted to come and hear him talk on Marx. But fortunately for us, many more people are interested now in thinking about Marx and in thinking about class. But for feminists, or all the feminists I knew, what was important to us was a type of refashioned Marx, one inflected, of course, by feminism, by women's situation, and today by intersectionality. And I'll ignore for now the media inflected talk of a new sort of feminism, a neoliberal feminism or aspirational feminism, which uh, Theresa May represents and Sheryl Sandberg and others. I could have lots to say about that. But some of us feminists from that time, like me, are still around and there are many others who are still interested in the ideas that we had. But in refashioning Marx, we often had certain quibbles and queries. For instance, because we wanted influenced by um, the New Left and 68 to think about personal life, to think about culture, about living differently now, we were often much more sympathetic to that utopian strand of Marxism, which Marxism in particular, Leninists tended to be fairly critical of. So we were interested in people like William Morris, the Owenites in particular, where the first socialist feminists, according to Barbara Taylor, emerged. People living differently, talking about hierarchies between men and women, talking about collectivity in the household. And these were all ideas which, at that time, on the left, were tended to be dismissed. So <clears throat> today, many left feminists, such as me, still remain sympathetic to that more utopian parts, citing perhaps that maverick Marxist E.P. Thompson celebrating Morris for his interest in the education of desire, a phrase he borrows from Miguel Abensor, wanting to teach desire to desire, to desire better, and above all, to desire in a different way. Because if we don't have richer alternative ideas of the future, then we're likely to fall back on the utilitarian's dream of an earthly paradise, the maximization of economic growth. And we all know the dangers of that, and we all know that uh, all those who've been guilty of that. So, for instance, Sheila Rowbottom's writing always provided visions of possible egalitarian futures, especially in her book, Dreamers of a New Day, where she takes us back to all the thinking, in particular, from the US and from here, of women 
trying to work out the sorts of households, the sorts of communities they actually wanted to live in. And militant trade unionist women were also very much a part of this, such as um, in the Lancashire Mills, Ada Mill Chu would write to her local paper saying, factory women needed time to read and they needed time to enjoy nature. We cannot be said to live, she said. We merely exist. A living wage, ours is a lingering, dying wage. And we know from many other women around that time, a hundred years ago, from the 1890s in particular, through to the destruction of those movements with the First World War, were busy trying to think about how we really organize different sorts of society. And as Sheila concluded that book, there's no automatic accretion of improvement, but the need to reinvent utopian thinking in every era. So that's what many of us thought and what brings me to my second main point about where feminists have often disagreed with or wanted to shift the emphasis of Marxism. Um, and that's because it's never had enough to say about care and social reproduction, despite Engels' late essay, The Origins of the Family, suggesting that the elimination of private property and the institution of the state would be the end of men's control over women. We didn't quite buy that. Feminists, as we know, often begun by wanting to prioritize that politics of care, politics of reproduction. And it also, um, <clears throat> well, we didn't, I don't think we necessarily agree with everything that's been said about care today, but for instance, Laura Briggs, who has just written a book, The Anthropologist from the State, saying why all politics is reproductive politics. But I think many of us would agree with those such as Nancy Fraser saying that care today represents the main contradiction of capitalism. That it cannot, we are living in a world that simply cannot allow us either to care adequately for, for each other and which is bringing about the deterioration of the social infrastructure across the board which would enable any sort of healthy society. So market metrics and market values have now invaded all our lives, including the most personal spaces, home life. And we are urged to view ourselves at all times as competing bits of capital, enhancing our personal value. And this accompanies the shaming of those seen as dependent on welfare. Meanwhile, global patterns of poverty are forcing um, women from poorer countries. The care chain is in process where women from poorer countries are having to abandon their own children, their own dependents, in order to come to richer parts of the world to take up our care work as people are working ever longer hours just to keep a home over their heads and over their families' heads. And today, even wounds are being rented from people in poorer countries. Organs are being sold off. So a truly dystopian situation is with us already. So, as I've said, feminism often had an ambivalent relationship with Marxism, and especially when discussing domestic labor. 
We see this, for example, in the debates around wages for housework, which are resurging again. Is that a position we take? It was first proposed by those dissident Marxists, Selma James, Della Costa, Sylvia Frederici, 50, 46 years ago, rightly describing women's essential caring work as exploited and invisible, and exploited and invisible because wage, wageless. They drew upon the distinctly workerist or autonomous, autonomous form of Italian Marxism associated with Mario Tronti, where he, which generated the rather paradoxical demand that wages must be paid to housework, for housework, so houseworkers could refuse to do it. And in that way, by houseworkers refusing to do care work, they thereby um, uh, show how much capitalism depended upon it, and this would challenge and ultimately destroy capitalism. Now, wages for housework was rejected by the overwhelming majority of feminists back in the 1970s. Yes, we knew women's unpaid, undervalued domestic work was pivotal to our overall marginalization and vulnerability, as well as violence in the home and more. However, we rejected the notion that the diversities of domestic care, and especially sexual intimacy, um, should be economized and marketized. We wanted the whole structure of domestic labor and care work reconceptualized, fairly distributed between women and men, and above all, underpinned by significantly expanded, democratically run community resources and shorter paid working day to enable the time and resources for all people to be able to care for each other. And what's more, for a while in the early to mid-70s, we did have many gains in that area. Many of us were actually involved in setting up those nurseries, setting up those other community resources. However, with the shift from um, 79, that shift in government, and, and um, mark the map, it takes all rationality, so much enforced since the 1980s with the right in power, we find that everything that we had bought and won had, was being turned around. It was precisely those spaces in the community or in the trade unions which allowed some alternative forms of struggle and of caring for each other to take shape that were first and foremost attacked during that period. So, um, <clears throat> so what, um, um, what we had argued then is that um, you know, we've got to change our communities first. What, and we didn't, we, we thought that you actually had to do the opposite to privatise, to monetize everything. And the situation which we're in now, strangely, is one which I think um, shows how right we were to be worried about payment for domestic services and intimacy, because that's actually the situation in which we're in now, more and more of care work and even sexual activity has been marketized. And in fact, contrary to the idea that this would enable us to refuse it and bring down capitalism, what I think is the case is that it's what's shoring up neoliberal 
capitalism, the sort of predatory capitalism we know today that has now invaded um, all our spaces in, you know, across the board. And so what it's left us with is this total crisis of care in which you know, many of us are describing it as a crisis of humanity in that for so many people, their needs for care are being left unmet. So that the beverage, the promise of beverage of the welfare state that we could be cared for from cradle to grave is being precisely reversed in that many people are worse off from cradle to grave. That is, the birth rate is falling for the working class. Um, the resources for youth have been depleted with 600 disappearing in the last 10 years just when people are worried about youth violence with um, uh, mothers more and more anxious about not having the time to do the caring work they need to do with, with people who are at home trying to care for sick elderly or disabled, particularly working class, finding this impossible to do with the cutbacks in welfare resources, and so many of them, particularly uh, poor and working class carers, are suffering from both physical and mental ill health, and there's rising mortality. People dying earlier for working class men and for women of all ages, for, sorry, for women across the classes, precisely because there is no one to care for them. There is no adequate care. So that's why, for me, the sorts of um, communism, the sorts of change that I um, want to be fighting for is one that begins from that prioritizing of care. And that's, it's, I do see some moves towards that coming from McDonald and Corbyn, and that's what I want to um, keep on hoping that we're all going to be emphasizing. characterization of British imperialism as based on looting and plunder. You then talked, I think, quite rightly about the primacy of the Palestinian question today, facing any socialist or communist in this country. I'd agree with that. However, the Palestinian organizations, not necessarily the most radical ones, said to the Labour Party, do not approve the IHRA definition with all explanation that that required to convince anybody that it was a Zionist standpoint. Yeah? They put up a political picket line, if you like, 
and the Labour Party NEC and leaders of Momentum went through that picket line. Why would you not call that crossing a class boundary? There's one up here. And so the, the kind of common theme that's united all your responses has been the, the relevance of, of Marxist theory today. Um, but the problem of kind of assessing the relevance of, of Marxism is that Marxism isn't some kind of ossified school of thought from the mid 19th century. It's meant to be a kind of living, breathing tradition. And it's meant to be kind of narrating history in motion. And yet all of you here still identify as Marxists. And so that, that means that there must be in 2018 something essential to being a Marxist. Um, but if Marxism is about kind of radically kind of historicizing um, ideas and kind of crystallizing them in a particular historical context, that, that must mean that kind of Marx's own concepts must kind of be subject to revision and improvement as, as history changes. Um, so I, I'd, I'd wonder what for the panelists, what, what are the essential criteria by which you say that you're Marxist in the 21st century? Uh, yeah, it's to Aaron. I'm, I'm afraid I disagree with you. I think you've got your Marxism wrong. Um, <laughs> Marx himself analysed the power loop and the effect that had on the production of uh, linen. Um, the fact that a worker could produce a thousand times more linen in one day than they used to do by the hand uh, method. And um, that's all you're seeing. Profit doesn't come from exchanging commodities at their value. Their value is the amount of socially necessary labour time worked up in them. Value. Commodities exchange is their value. Their value is the amount of socially necessary labour time worked up in them. I agree with Vijay, you haven't factored in transportation, intellectual property rights, and so on. But things don't just, they actually make profit by employing human beings and increasing the amount of um, surplus value by decreasing the amount of variable capital Sorry, in poverty the working class. So yeah, um, before you publish the book in June, I think, please, have a, have a revision of that. It's a shame that we haven't covered the other very important things about Marxism, the impoverishment of the working class, and the, and the link he made with that, with his political theory and the need for revolution and to um, uh, and to use red terror as well. Thank you, thank you. Uh, so we're going to take one more question, um, ideally from a woman. Over there. Uh, question to Vijay. Um, given that barely anyone knows um, the Petrin system, um, and the biggest issues around the Petrin system is actually the abuse of the Petrin system, um, I think to create a narrative, the dominant narrative which exists is that patent rights are so important and it creates jobs and creates innovation, so on and so forth. Much of it is uh, not, not necessarily right. Um, to argue that that's actually a weak link, I found that quite surprising. Um, so how do you, I mean, I don't, I don't see the narrative changing immediately. How do you see the narrative changing over the next Thank you. Okay, so unfortunately, no more questions for the session. So to recap, the questions are about one on Palestine, one on the essentials of Marxism, uh, one on why Aaron is wrong, and then one on narrative. Sorry. Okay. Um,
comrade, um, thank you for the question. Um, I, I'm not sure I should comment on how the Labour Party comrades and Momentum comrades should conduct this debate because, um, and whether um, this is a foregone conclusion that because those um, guidelines were accepted that the battle is over because I do think that the battle is far from over on the question of Palestine within the Labour Party. I, for instance, uh, are in contact with several uh, momentum activists and Labour Party comrades who are continuing to fight this and to continue to move the question um, into the Corbyn project in, in general. So I don't believe that the fight is over, although I completely agree with you that this was a very major setback and we really need to um, up our game on this. On the question of um, crossing the picket line, um, I think BDS is a global picket line and my parents taught me never to cross the picket line. So I do think that BDS as a um, form of activism for us to participate in the global non-violent struggle for Palestinian justice that is demanded of us by the Palestinian civil society is the way forward for us in this next phase of struggle. So I would really hope and I'm looking forward to working with comrades in Momentum and in the UK in general as to pass BDS resolutions in our workplaces, on our campuses, and to work towards it in on the streets. Yeah, so on the IHRA, I agree it's an opportunity to educate, and I think, yes, this was a it was a setback, but the number of people who said to me, wow, I had no idea about the history of Israel since 1944, let's say, really, right? you know, basically the demise of, of, sort of, of the, the mandate of Palestine sort of, uh, towards the end of the Second World War, I didn't know about the Nakba, didn't know about the atrocities and the, the heinous crimes that were committed there. So I think it is an opportunity to educate people. I think more people are in receipt of the facts now than they were a few months ago. Um, so I see it very much as the beginning, actually, of a an empowered and revivified mass movement uh, for a free Palestine. Um, and if this was the catalyst for it, I mean, maybe that was a blessing in a way. Uh, but I think it's something we, we will have to certainly focus our attention on. Secondly, Marx, uh, Althusser had a nice thing he said about Marx. He said he was like Thales with mathematics. And Thales, the Greek mathematician. And he said that Marx discovered a new continent of human thought. So, just as Thales discovered mathematics, Marx gave us political economy, um, materialist history. And so the point is, you know, we, he discovered the continent, we're the ones who have to explore it, whether it's through gender, through race, etc. And of course, other comrades proceeded to do precisely that, and we are standing on their shoulders. Um, and in a way, I mean, David Harvey says this, the world that he's seeking to explain is more pervasive and existent now than it was in the mid-19th century. So, capital is called, Capital, a critique of political economy. He's critiquing the ideas of um, early 19th century political economists, Ricardo, Smith, etc., and their utopia, right, of reducing absolutely everything to value. And that utopia is far more existent today than it was in the mid 19th century. So, if anything, he's more germane and salient uh, than he was then, even if, of course, he only discovered that continent which we then have gone on to explore. 
the thing about variable capital and fixed capital, the Economist in 2011, 10 seconds, the Economist in 2011 asked a great question. What happens when labour becomes capital? That is to say that, no, it's not capital, that's the point. Labour is not capital, that's the point, right? Uh, but what happens when it does become capital? This is the economist, and it's talking about automation. Labour is no, labour is not capital. Fixed capital is not labour. But the point is, one could transmogrify into the other anyway. This chat, you know. There'll be debates around Marx being right or wrong when we're all post-Homo sapiens. Finally, care. Um, care. This is really important. I, I, would, I would agree with everything you said, I was at the fourth sort of point of leverage is the care economy. Because of automation, it's going to be the last thing to be automated. Because whilst we used to think that chess and mathematics were the most demanding uh, tasks to set on our brain, it turns out actually it's tasks more around fine motor coordination that are the hardest to automate. So care is not only going to grow as a section of the labour market because of ageing, it's also going to be the last to be automated. So if we can unionise in care work in particular, huge opportunities. Yes, it's um, certainly an area that is growing and it's an, an area that keeps entrenching both gender and racialized hierarchies because, as I've said, care workers are still overwhelmingly poor women and overwhelmingly immigrant women, uh, black and ethnic minority women, often you know, travelling the world in order to do it. So I'm sorry there wasn't a question on that because that is one area where Traditional Marxism has obviously been incredibly weak, and even the way some people have used Marx has been problematic. So there's a lot more thinking to do there. On Israel-Palestine, when I'm not talking about care, I'm often talking and writing about that. And um, you know, it's so interesting that it's the left that um, is now being accused of being the site of anti-Semitism, when the left was once the home for Jews around the world. You know, we are, there wouldn't be a left without Jews uh, making up most of the communist parties around the world. But um, the class situation of Jews has changed and the situation of Israel, not necessarily the origin of Israel, Israel really begins because of the anti-Semitism of the West, because we would give no aid to the Jews of Europe as they were facing genocide. Even after they came out of the camps, most Western countries, particularly the USA, would not allow them in, and that's how they end up in Palestine, and it's the guilty conscience of the West that is responsible for Israel, as we know it. And of course, there have been Zionists committed to peace, so it's incredibly complex trying to talk about Israel, Zionism, and the left. Um, but um, it's incredibly unfortunate, almost unbelievable, that um, they've been able to use that as a way, anti-Semitism as a way of attacking Corbyn, when people like me who've known Corbyn for the last 40 years know that he's always had the best possible relations with the Jews of Islington and in fact um, with uh, Jewish people everywhere. So it's a terrible thing that we're going to have to keep fighting. First, before I forget, I just wanted to thank Archie for including me in this uh, festival you have here. Uh, really happy to see people so energized and excited about these ideas. 
And what I would say is that this is a conversation. Our understanding of our traditions and our assessment of the current reality is part of a conversation that we're in. And I'm very happy that this conversation is being held so seriously. And I hope you deepen this and have it more often than once a year. Um, I very much welcome what you said. And again, just to repeat, this is a, in a way to stimulate a debate around the idea of intellectual property. Because after all, let's just take the word property uh, as the operative part of this. Intellectual property is merely another side of property. When you expropriate property, what happens to ideas? And how is it that ideas which are the common property of humans are now the particular property of corporations? And I think this requires more and more debate as you encounter your own pharmaceutical industry in Britain, your own food industry in Britain, and how they are sequestering human ideas and making it their private property. And very last, very quick thing, I wanted to tell you that in our Indian movement, two of the biggest strikes that have taken place over the course of the last two years were led by Anganwadi workers and Asha workers. These are women who are in some of the most militant trade unions in India who work in the care industries, taking care of children, that is the Anganwadi workers, and the ASHA workers are rural health workers. And they have developed a theory of their struggle, which I hope people in the West will take as their additional reference points. Because often, we don't take seriously the struggles outside the West as theory makers. We just see them as people who are struggling. Thanks a lot.